The second book of Nephi begins with the aging prophet Lehi near the end of his life, feeling the urgency to leave some final thoughts with his family. He prophesies warnings and blessings for his posterity in the Promised Land, reviews God's plan, the fall and salvation of man, and gives parting words of wisdom to his children. These first two chapters carry a running dichotomy, a theme of choice. The need for opposition, agency, justice, and mercy are at the core of Lehi's thoughts at this time. Reading these verses provides an opportunity to ponder, how can I exercise my agency to rise to the challenge and choose the good part? I invite you to join us in our study of 2 Nephi chapters 1 and 2 of the Book of Mormon and encourage each of us to seek divine inspiration. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I think I didn't realize that I was spiritually asleep. And when my son left on his mission about a year ago, each week we would have a phone call. And on those phone calls, I realized he was digging deeper into the scriptures and I was getting more and more distracted by my life, my business, my career. I find it really easy to become spiritually asleep in today's day and age. As I work full time, I have kids at home and just trying to balance the juggles of everyday living it's easy to lose eternal perspective. I was struggling with a very difficult temptation, and I was still going to church, I was still reading the scriptures, but I was going through the motions of doing it. I didn't feel anything but just the obligation to do it. And I decided I need to make a better effort. And as I've done that, I've felt my spirit have an awakening. To wake up, I look for my Savior in everyday life. I look for the miracles. I look for tender mercies. I look for His hand in everything that I do. I started to feel the love that my Heavenly Father had for me, and especially through Him placing other people to, sh to share their love with me, knowing that I wasn't alone in my struggles, knowing that Heavenly Father wanted me to not only repent, but he wanted me to succeed and be happy. Welcome everybody to our discussion on 2 Nephi chapters 1 and 2 of the Book of Mormon. My name is Ben Lomu and I'm your host. Seated next to me is our gospel scholar, Patrick Mason. Patrick is an author and religious historian and is also a professor at Utah State University. He and his wife, Melissa, have four children and live in Logan, Utah. Patrick, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Always good to be here. And seated next to Patrick is our special guest, Lily Anderson. Lily completed a master's degree in social work at UNLV, later obtaining a PhD in marriage, family, and human development from BYU. She has a full-time private practice in individual marriage and family counseling. Dr. Anderson is the author of a book, Choosing Glory, and currently has her own weekly podcast, also called Choosing Glory. Lily, I cannot wait to talk to you today. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, I'm delighted to be here. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Thank you all for being here with us today. Our discussions are built around the scriptures and supported by additional study resources, namely, Come Follow Me. Additional study and teaching resources are available at byutv.org slash comefollowup and through our social media channels. 
Okay, Patrick, we are gonna be jumping into 2 Nephi chapters one and two. What sort of historical context can you provide for us as we go into these chapters? Yeah, so this is at the very end of Lehi's life. We've been with Lehi throughout the whole book of 1 Nephi, right? And the, the family has been journeying through the wilderness and, and across the, the ocean to the promised land. But in these chapters, we get his final messages, first of all, to all of his children mm -hmm. and to Zoram, and then specifically to Jacob in chapter two. So the first topic that we're gonna be touching on is entitled, Awake, Arise from the Dust. What specifically do we need to know about that phrase that'll help us understand these chapters a little more. Yeah, well, I mean, especially in chapter one, he's kind of focusing especially on Laman and Lemuel, his older children. And as we know over, over the past several weeks, that, that they've not always followed his counsel, mm -hmm. that they've, they've oftentimes been in conflict with Nephi and, and their other brothers. And so this is in many ways kind of his, his last attempt to call them to repentance, to call them to change their lives as he knows that his, his own life is winding down. Okay. Lily, what else can you tell us about yourself and your experience that can help us really understand what's going on here? Well, these are wonderful chapters, as Patrick said, because his righteousness and his care comes through this so clearly, right? And I have really you know, loved, as a parent, being able to give these kinds of messages to my own children. Right. You know, I don't think they're my last lectures yet. <laughs> we hope not, right? <laughs> not planning on it anytime really soon, but, but you start thinking that way as your yeah. children grow up about how can we you know, really communicate what we care about the most mm -hmm. and what we hope that they will take forward and teach to their children and so on, you know, so that the legacy can go on of gospel living. Can we go in and read some of these verses, Patrick, and talk a little bit about this concept of what it really means to awake and arise? Certainly. Uh, so if we go to 2 Nephi chapter 1, and let's start in, in verse 13, speaking to his children with, with a special emphasis on, on Laman and Lemuel. He says, Oh, that ye would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they're carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which you're bound and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust. So there's the sense that you're gonna be surrounded by something. You're not all mm -hmm. alone in life, right? Uh, but, but put off these chains that have bound you and put on the armor of righteousness instead. Lily, from the lens of a marriage and family counselor, how would you relate this message to our day? Shortly, well, probably about four or five years after I started doing counseling, my kids were asking me, so what have you learned as a counselor? And that was a really interesting question. Honestly, what came to me first was really right out of section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And my answer was, don't cover your sins. And a lot of times it's not just an intent to try to be secretive, but sometimes it's to, to hide it from ourselves, you know, to minimize the things that we're doing or rationalize them or even be in full denial. And honestly, it does put people into a kind of deep sleep. Gordon B. Hinckley's phrase is so wonderful that they were taking on the slow stain of the world mm. and not really following a covenant path. It could be selfishness. Mm -hmm. It could be the desire to control. It could be a bad temper that doesn't even get addressed. And so it does damage that, you know, it could be criticism in a family. It can be harshness, and of course it can go into infidelity and addiction and things like that that we don't address, and when we don't, the light shuts down. 
it, it, it reminds me of uh, of Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, right? With with Marley right. putting on that the chain, chain right. one link at a time, right? Because oftentimes you don't notice right. it. That's it's slow, slow uh, exactly, and it's and it's gradual, and and then before you know it, now you're carrying around all these heavy chains. So when it comes to shaking off these chains, uh, how can the Savior help us remove some of the chains that are limiting our ability to progress and grow? Well, I think that what you just said there is the first principle of it, and this is what Lehi says in verse 15. Behold, the Lord has redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory and am encircled about eternally in the arms of love. So replace the chains that are encircling you with Christ's arms. Christ wants to encircle us in his love. And so that's what we want to focus on is, is how do we center our, ourselves and how do we, how do we put ourselves in, in the context of Christ's love. I would love to hear from the audience on how the Savior has helped you awake and shake off the chains that are hindering your progression. Chamil. The Holy Ghost has done a lot for me in my life. I've had a particularly difficult time um, when I was going through college with my health, and as my health was declining, so was my spiritual well-being. And what helped me get through that difficult time of being in so much physical pain was having the sweet joy that the Spirit brought, that the Savior was there right beside me that entire time, and that He had not forsaken me. That awakened in me being and taught me to be less passive in just attending church, reading the scriptures, but to really engage and know for myself who my Savior was and that He had a sincere love for me. I love that. Thank you, Chamoon. I love that she brought in the Holy Ghost because I think the Holy Ghost is key in helping us learn how to do that because we see with Laman and Lemuel that there is something, something's missing. What are some of the choices that Laman and Lemuel are making that have brought them to this point that they're so heavily weighed down and unwilling to change? We can't fully control uh, everything. And so how are we gonna respond? Are we gonna respond with love, with faith, with hope, with forgiveness? Uh, or are we gonna respond with anger, with resentment, with fear, with a kind of self-focus? And all the brothers have similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. The whole family goes through very similar trials. And so how do they choose to engage those very difficult circumstances? And with my clients, a lot of times I'll hear just what you said. I've just never been that way, or I'm not good at that, or this is just the way I am. <laughs> and, and my answer is always like, well, yet, <laughs> or so far. <laughs> right, so far. I mean, yeah. it might be that way so far, but you're still alive, right? You're still breathing. Then Christ can help us change. There's, that is what the atonement is all about, is the power to change. So this opportunity is always there. And yeah, I might be that way so far. I might have not been able to do this other thing yet. But if I can add those thoughts to myself as I go through, if we can help our children see when they get into a trap and they feel like, I'll never be able to do this, mm -hmm. or I can't be that way. Well, not yet, but you know, the, the sky's the limit if we turn to Christ and that enabling power of the atonement. When it comes to bad habits as chains, how have you been able to help some of your clients overcome that? We talk a lot about baby steps. Okay. You know, because it, it is incremental and we can all take a small step forward. And you know, human progress is not like this. You know, it's like this. But if it's more upward than downward, we are progressing. 
we're starting to see those highs get higher and the lows get higher and the Lord really does become the wind beneath our wings and helps the honest heart to do more than we think we can mm -hmm. do. But it is, it has to start in small steps and there's nothing wrong with that. Take that one step, you know, go back to church or start reading the scriptures or start apologizing, start curbing your temper, you know, start being a little less jealous of people and try to think more positively, change our negative self-talk to positive. I think a lot of it is really our developing trust in Jesus Christ yeah. because He is mighty to save. And we keep on trying to think, I can earn salvation, you know, and earn is really the wrong word there. You mm -hmm. know? So it's, it's not about earning, it's about qualifying for the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. Trusting. Trusting yeah. that His power is enough, that we become perfect because He is perfect, not because I'm gonna force myself to be good. It's, it's joining with Him, loving Him, being taught by Him so that we can, we can and let him work his wonderful, marvelous miracle in us. We had a question coming from one of our viewers uh, that I think relates closely to Lehi trying to connect his children to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Clara Rollins from Cleveland, Ohio. Sometimes children, especially teenagers, feel like the church is forced upon them. How can I teach my kids to love the church and not resent it? What are your thoughts on how to teach your kids to not resent the goodness we're trying to instill in them? Um, I think there are a lot of levels to this. The first one is say, you know, my heart always goes out to parents. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many who have that same question. They have the same struggle. Maybe their children have not, they're not even struggling anymore. They've just left. And I think that it's really important to not get, you know, in a place where we identify ourselves as somehow failures. I mean, okay. I don't believe Lehi is identifying himself as a failure. And then there are some proactive things, of course, you know, loving our children sounds so obvious, but you know, we can get better at it. You mm -hmm. know, we can be um, better with our tempers, less critical, more positive, more, you know, have more fun, do all the things the proclamation invites us to do as families that really can help our children then connect with God. Because while we did say, you know, in the question, like how can we help them not to resent the church? I wanted my children to know that even, even if church isn't the most fun, you can always feel the spirit if you're there to worship God, and that's why we go. And there's a lot we can do as parents mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, till that soil and help to teach those principles always by precept and our best example possible, even though we're not perfect either. Right, and it's, it's so important to keep in mind, and, and you touched on this, as parents, we have these children that have been entrusted to us for a time, but they're not just my kids. They were his first. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and last and always. And last and always. Right? And I love how staying within this family dynamic, maybe it hurts when he points them to their brother. Why can't you be more like Nephi? <laughs> that always goes over <laughs> always well. Always goes over well. <laughs> Why can't you be more like your little brother? But I, I, I love the words that he says and, and his intentions are really trying to help and prosper and preserve their family. I think one of the things we see, maybe one of the fundamental issues that Laman and Lemuel have, and it's common to so many people, including myself, is that it's so easy to look at the other person and to point out their flaws, mm -hmm. to point out the ways that they've wronged us, the, the way that things haven't gone the way that I want it to. Yeah. It's much harder to look in the mirror. And, but but, but that's, that's what Lehi is asking them to do. Mm -hmm. That's what God is asking each of us to do. That's why repentance is a fundamental principle of the gospel, is to look at myself. Before I point the finger at someone else, what is my role mm -hmm. in all of this? Well, I think it's, 
you know, there are endless applications, but all through scripture, we see families that struggle, mm -hmm. right. where there is envy or jealousy, or some who choose what's right and some who rebel. Starting with the very first family. Starting with That's the very right. first family, exactly, and going all the way, you know. So I think it's important for us not to demonize our own experience and, and think that we're less because our families have struggles. It's a, certainly on-the-job training, and God expects that we're going to make those errors and so on, but He can consecrate all that for our gain. Yeah, I think it's why the family and the church are the two great laboratories of Christian the discipleship, fire. right? Because it's it's mostly unchosen relationships other than your yeah. spouse. So That's like true. God says, you can choose one. All the others, <laughs> like you, you, you just get. Yeah. And, and it's learning how to navigate conflict, how to navigate different personalities, how to navigate all these different things and not just survive, but learn to love. And take the responsibility to That's grow right. through it. Like That's you right. said, look in the mirror. You know, we can't change anybody else, although we spend most of our energy trying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Instead, we could like, let's ramp that back and just try to change myself, you know, and that is the great synonym to repentance, change. Well, I'm excited to discuss this a little bit more in footnotes, but for now, thank you so much uh, for your comments on this first topic, Awake, Arise from the Dust. And for those watching at home, how has your family helped you come closer to Christ? Share with us online or on any of our social media platforms. Agency is important to me because the whole reason I came to this earth is to try to become more like our Father in Heaven. The concept of agency has always been very logical for me in terms of cause and effect. So when we're making good choices, we have positive results, and we're making bad choices, we have negative results. My son recently told me he didn't want to come home for the summer, and that was hard because he lives in Korea and I haven't seen him for two years. But I wanted to make sure that he had the power to say no if that's really what he wanted to have happen, and I wanted to honor his agency in that choice, just like I would want somebody to honor my agency and not take that away from me. God the Father has given us a plan where we get what we want. That's amazing to me, and yet it's so generous we get more than we actually choose. The second topic we're gonna to discuss comes from 2 Nephi chapter two. I am free to choose liberty and eternal life. Patrick, what sort of context can you provide for us as we now jump into this new topic? Yeah, so especially when we focus on chapter two now, uh, Lehi is gonna direct his, his advice specifically to one of his sons, to Jacob. And we see this right in, in verse one of chapter two, where he says, and now Jacob, I speak unto you. Thou art my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. And behold, in thy childhood, thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. So in other words, he's saying, you know, so Jacob and Joseph were, were his sons born in, in the wilderness. And, and so, so now it's, it's recognizing that they had a different experience mm -hmm. than, than their older brothers, that their whole life has been one of tribulation, of, of conflict, of, of the, they didn't have the comforts of living in Jerusalem and things like that. But also the, the fact that he recognizes that they have suffered because of the rudeness of, of their older brothers, yeah. of Laman and Lemuel as well. So, so that's, I think, really important context to understand what Lehi is gonna teach because he's understanding that Jacob has actually had a difficult life up to this point. Lily, what have you learned in your experience about the role of agency when it comes to families and that whole family dynamic? I hear a lot from parents that they're worried about interfering with the agency of their children mm -hmm. sometimes when they're trying to get their kids to comply and obey and you know, become decent human beings. <laughs> and 
And I try to help them understand that agency is very different from freedom and that no one can take away your agency and we can't take anybody else's agency away. It's a God-given gift. The battle for agency was won in the pre-earth life. So when he says liberty, he doesn't mean that we're always going to be free. I mean, think the Israelites were in captivity. You know, many people have been, Joseph was in captivity, Joseph of Egypt. A lot of times people are in difficult circumstances, as you were just saying, Patrick, and the, that's not the liberty God's talking about. He's talking about the liberty to have eternal life, mm -hmm. the liberty to become what we were created to become, to fulfill our potential, to magnify the purpose of our creation. That's what that liberty is. So freedom is a negotiable commodity. I have to give up freedoms in order to be a member of the church. To and be a citizen. I'm, to be a citizen of the country. We give up lots of freedoms for things that we value more than those particular freedoms or indulgences. So that's important to teach our children and to not feel so disempowered as parents that we feel like, well, I can't really tell them to do anything or not to do something without interfering with their agency. And a lot of parents surprisingly get caught in that trap. Patrick, what can you teach us about what Lehi is teaching about agency and the importance of it in the plan? Yeah, that's a great question because that's exactly what he's doing. He is trying to give Jacob the bigger picture here. In many ways, this is one of the most doctrinally rich chapters mm -hmm. in the entire Book of Mormon. And, and we might go to, to verse 26 where he begins to, to talk about this, especially in relationship to, to agency, but also where, what agency is predicated upon. And so in verse 26, he says, And the Messiah, Jesus Christ, cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God has given. What Lehi is trying to help Jacob understand is that you are free because Jesus Christ has freed you. If it weren't for the atonement, if it weren't for Jesus Christ's saving grace, your sins would drag you down mm -hmm. to the point that you, you literally would have no freedom. You, you would not have the ability to escape them. And so, so he said, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, he takes those chains off of you, right? He now gives you the freedom. He gives you the platform by which you can make real choices, where you can choose liberty, you can choose life, you can choose Christ or otherwise. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear from the audience on how your righteous use of agency has helped strengthen your testimony of the plan of salvation. Aaron. So I love from the scripture that you just read, verse 26, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. And my life is better when I choose good. And he's waiting for us to figure out, okay, just keep choosing, keep choosing good. Yeah, we're going to mess up. We can still repent but we start getting a little more steam as we move forward, trying to figure out how to better choose good and to keep those chains cast off so that we do become agents as he would have us be and not just agents eh, subject to whatever Satan would throw at us. I also love that verse that Aaron mentioned because um, I see so much of victimhood in our culture mm. these days and in our societies where we do feel acted upon by lots of things. You know, life is hard, maybe the economy is bad, you know, my job's not working out, my family is tough, my marriage is hard. And, and we can get caught into that feeling of, I'm just being acted upon. And I've found this phrase to be quite useful that I use a lot in counseling, to be a non-victim Christian. We realize that I, I am not meant to be acted upon. I'm meant to act, I'm meant to choose that path. 
just because every choice that I might desire in a worldly sense is not immediately available to me doesn't mean I don't have a choice. And again, what you said earlier was so good. I mean, I saw a poster once that echoed the same sentiment that said, you know, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you how choose you, to respond, yeah. except I think it's closer to one in 99. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So it really is. We are free to be that non-victim Christian and we are limited if we start to see ourselves as victims. Yeah, and, and, and Lehi continues with this in, in verse 27, where he says, Wherefore men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. In other words, God's given us what we need to, to succeed, to survive. And they're free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Now, when, it, when it's here, it seems so easy, right? <laughs> Which one do you want? Like right. right. liberty, good life, good, right? Or, or do you want captivity and death? Mm -hmm. Obviously in life, it's, it's, some of our choices are, are more complex, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and so forth. But, but the fundamental principle is absolutely true. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we have the power to, to make these choices. And we're really benefited in our lives if we shrink it down to that, if we kind of distill it down to that. Whatever that choice is and however complex it might be, it really comes down to the same thing. I am free to choose Christ or not. And I can celebrate that and I can keep doing it. As you said, if we keep doing it, it gets easier. The Spirit confirms that we're strengthened in that path and we start to feel the fruit of those good choices. I think this is, this is so meaningful in verse 29, not to choose. I mean, Lehi is now going to make his own pitch again. Mm -hmm. You know, I would that you would choose Christ, right? And not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein, which giveth the spirit of the devil power to captivate, to bring you down to hell, that he may reign over you in his own kingdom. Those chains again, that loss of liberty forever that would happen without Jesus Christ. But the flesh is weak. And why? Because those appetites are powerful. Sometimes I want to eat on fast day. <laughs> sometimes I want to sleep in instead of going to nine o'clock church. You know, sometimes, sometimes? I, <laughs> you know, I'd rather keep all my money instead of pay tithes and offerings. But, but we, if we realize that like those natural man appetites are everywhere, but if we really want the, the opportunity to become what we're meant to be, which is really to be conformed to the image of Christ, then these are easy sacrifices to make. And, and it is about taking those three giant steps back and looking at the plan. What does this distill down to? I'm choosing Christ or I'm choosing the adversary and I don't want that. Well, and, and, and one of the, the great things, if, if we rewind, because we've been talking about Jesus Christ's role in the plan of salvation here, but he sets it up with going back to, to the Garden of Eden, to the very conditions Beginning. by which we could be on this earth and, and make choices. Mm -hmm. And so he, he talks about Adam and Eve in the garden and, and in the garden that they were innocent. And so he says in verse 23, had they remained in, in the garden in a, in a pure and innocent state, they would have had no children. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. And so he helps us introduce, I think, one of the great doctrines of the Restoration, mm -hmm. that, that when Eve took that fruit, mm -hmm. it was a recognition that, right. that by doing so, yes, life would be full of misery and pain and sorrow. But guess what? That's the platform. Those are the conditions under which we can choose Christ. Those are the conditions under which we can really grow and develop and be who God wants us to be. Those are the stepping stones that lead to experiencing, as we'll talk about later, pure joy. Yeah. 
And another thing that I tried to teach my children as they walked through their lives, you know, young and growing up, was that, you know, when life was tough or unfair and they were suffering for somebody else's bad choice or being blamed for something that wasn't their fault or someone was just treating them poorly, that this was their moment. All of those are special moments. I mean, I would say everybody can be good when it's easy, but it's when it's hard, when it's unfair, that agency really has power to let us choose the path of Christ. You know, this is your moment. And I would say, you know, this is your chance to prove you're a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ. You can make this choice right now and feel the strength flow into you. I love, Lily, so many times you've said choosing Christ, because it all centers around Jesus Christ, because none of this, none of this is, is possible without Him. Yeah, and, and this is exactly where, where Lehi you know, lands on in mm -hmm. verse 28. And now, my sons, I would that ye should look to the great mediator mm -hmm. and hearken unto his great commandments and be faithful unto his words and choose eternal life according to the will of his Holy Spirit. I mean, you can just feel Lehi pleading yeah. with, with his children yeah. to look to Christ and live. These are the things we testify of continually with our yeah. children, mm -hmm. hopefully, and we verbalize this as we, again, as we rise up, as we lie down, as we walk by the way, and we, re we remember to point out the love of Christ in our children's lives. If they can feel God's love daily, they are more inclined to choose Him. And one of the things that was such a privilege in my life is teaching my children how to pray to help them understand that there was a loving Heavenly Father who had the power and the desire to bless them. And all they needed to do was to ask and then try to seek to follow His way so that they wouldn't deny Him the desire that He has to bless us and each of them. I remember from my own youth praying and feeling that Lord, the Lord blessed me with those tender little mercies. And if we can do that with our children and then compound that by helping them feel the love of God daily, it helps them to be drawn to Christ and not to let things like opposition get in the way because yeah. they're doing it for Christ. Exactly, and I mean, we, we know that, that Jacob had been spiritually powerful from a very young age, mm -hmm. and, and Lehi acknowledges this. But exactly, he acknowledges this in, in verse four. Thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory, wherefore thou art blessed even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. Right, even, even though this was still five, 600 years in the future, right? right? There, there's a sense that Jacob already had that kind of witness, that kind of faith. So this wasn't the first time Jacob had heard these mm -hmm. principles, but that there's something powerful to hear our parents' testimonies. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that we have yet to cover, and I'm excited uh, when we get to footnotes to really dive into some of these things, but this has been such a wonderful uh, topic. As we've been discussing, I am free to choose eternal life. Thank you to the audience for being here and for sharing your thoughts and experiences as well with us. And for you at home, we still have much to cover in footnotes, so please stay with us. The Spirit communicates with me in quiet times. So rather than listening to music or podcasts when I'm driving in a car, which I do a lot, I oftentimes just write in silence and I get comfortable with my thoughts. I remember one day I was prompted to slow down at a, at a green light and it was good that I did because a truck went through really fast and probably would have killed me. Sometimes to hear the Spirit, I have to remove myself from other people and other devices and certain environments because with my ADHD, it kind of shuts down being able to feel and comprehend the Spirit. Even if I'm just working on my car or something, things aren't going well, I'll just stop and pray and things then seem to work out. Sometimes the Spirit speaks to me 
in a new idea that comes into my mind, a foreign thought that is so different from the whisperings of my own mind or my own thoughts, but it comes whole, in whole sentences, and it presents something new and precious. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions from 2 Nephi chapters 1 and 2 with Patrick and Lily, as well as our new guest, Joseph Spencer. Joseph is an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He's the author of seven books, including A Word in Season, Isaiah's Reception in the Book of Mormon. He's written dozens of articles on philosophy and scripture, and especially the Book of Mormon. Joe, welcome. Thanks. Ah, glad to be here. So as we jump into these chapters, Patrick, what are we going to focus on now? And specific to having Joe here, what can we look forward to in this uh, next segment? Yeah, like we mentioned before, I mean, these are very rich, very dense chapters. So much doctrine, so, mm -hmm. so much going on here. And so I'm thrilled, in addition to Lily's insights, to get Joe, because Joe and I have known each other uh, for, for a while. And I'm I sorry, just, Joe. Uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, very hard for me. It's, it's one of his trials. Uh, but I've learned so much about the Book of Mormon from Joe. I think he's one of the, the best scholars of the Book of Mormon we have in the church. So I'm, I'm just excited to hear what you have to say about opposition and about some of these other themes that we get from, from this chapter. Well, maybe a good place to start is actually to note that these two chapters, 2 Nephi 1 and 2, originally were one chapter, right? So when Joseph Smith dictates the text of the Book of Mormon, he dictates chapter breaks, but they're not the chapter breaks we have now. Uh, and so originally, 2 Nephi 1 and 2 is just one chapter which feels a little weird to us because we kind of want to isolate chapter two. Ah, here are the words to Jacob, and here's this great sermon on agency and law and so on. Uh, but if we read this as one fluid thing, there's some interesting things that happen. Partway through chapter two, for instance, this is in verse 14 that you note it for the first time, you'll see Lehi say, and now my sons, plural. Uh, he'll do that again in verse 28. Uh, my sons, I would that you should look to the great mediator. Uh, again, in verse 30, I have spoken these few words unto you all, my sons. So while he starts what's now chapter two, speaking, it seems very specifically to Jacob, all along the way, he's clearly still got Laman and Lemuel from chapter one in his sights. And it's almost like they're all in the same room, right. but, but at times he, he addresses individuals. Right, exactly. Right. And, uh, and then can let what he's saying to one person start to flow out into a message mm -hmm. for others which then maybe we should hear talk of opposition, questions of law and agency as in part for Jacob, but also he's trying to signal something to these sons he's been already I trying to draw listening. back. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, I really like that because I've always loved Lehi's dream. And it seems like sometimes with the gap in chapters that we tend to separate that discourse from what he's talking about now. But the reality is there's really not much time has passed and there's a strong connection that can help us understand why Lehi speaking to his sons based off of that powerful knowledge and testimony that he gained from that vision. One thing that's interesting in 1 Nephi 8, uh, the very last word Lehi says before he starts recounting his dream is, I fear exceedingly because of you, Laman and Lemuel. Exactly. And the very first thing Nephi says right after he finishes quoting his father is, he exceedingly feared because of Laman and Lemuel. So he like- And here's the extension, yeah, isn't it? It's exactly. like, and now please remember all the things that we've talked about that I've taught you and choose what's right. Coming choose back. Christ. Yeah. So yeah. something that we didn't get a chance to really uh, dive into in the previous segment, specifically because we, we were excited to learn from you, is that about opposition. Mm. 
can we jump into that? And what can you teach yeah. us about opposition from this chapter? Yeah, verse 11, famously, of chapter two. Sometimes I'll do the funny little thing with my students where I'll say, you all know this verse, right? So all of you look at the ceiling, don't look at the text for a minute. Tell me, what does it say? There has to be, and they'll say, opposition in all things. And I'll go, mm. wrong. <laughs> look at the text. And they'll all go, and? Where did this word and come from? Because <laughs> right. it doesn't say there has to be opposition. What he says is it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. And then we tend to take Lehi to be saying, okay, there's gotta be opposition. And then he gives us like a series of examples. Oh, wickedness versus righteousness or holiness versus misery and so on. Um, but the structure of the verse is a little different from that. So he says, there's gotta be some one opposition and opposition. And then he says, if not so, if it weren't for that one opposition, then righteousness couldn't be brought to pass, neither wickedness, holiness, misery, good, bad. These other oppositions, it seems, are dependent on this one opposition, which then makes us wonder, so what's that one opposition, right? And he'll clarify it a few verses on, uh, but before we turn there, actually, it's maybe worth noting that there's kind of a structure to verse 11. It comes in two halves, and the two halves focus on different kinds of oppositions that flow out of that one opposition. So if you notice in the first half, he says, if you don't have that one opposition, then you can't get righteousness or wickedness, holiness, misery, good, bad. Notice those are all pairs that are moral or spiritual in quality. And then in the second half, he raises this question again, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead. Now he says, having no life nor death, corruption, incorruption, happiness, misery, sense, and sensibility. These aren't moral oppositions, right? Or moral pairings. These are temporal. They're about life and death. Uh, so you get something like the natural complexity of life on the one hand, and on the other hand, moral, spiritual complexity. And all of this is growing out of some one fundamental opposition mm. that's got to set everything else in motion. So with all that set up, what's this one opposition? So in 14, he starts to tell the story of creation. Now, my sons, I speak unto you these things for your profit and learning. There is a God. He's created all things, both the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are, things to act, things to be acted upon. But then he says, this is verse 15, to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after he had created our first parents and the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and find all things which were created, it must needs be that there was an opposition. Sounds an familiar. Opposition. There it is again, there right? Now he's giving us the actual content. And this time he explains what it is. It must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life. And I think it's striking that he doesn't say the two trees are in opposition. It's the one tree and the fruit. And the fruit that's in opposition to the tree of life is of course the forbidden fruit. And the thing that sets that in motion, that creates that opposition is of course the law. Don't eat, don't eat the fruit of that tree. And this one law is necessary because if we don't have that one law given in Eden, we'll never get all the complexity that flows into life. Mm -hmm. wow. All of that seems to come, Adam and Eve have to have that one commandment and then once they've partaken of the fruit of the tree, sin and death together come into the world, temporal, spiritual. I can see why you like to hang out with. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, 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 it ruins it because I use just idea. the opposition and all things generically. So now, you know. That, that really is fascinating to, to be able to see that something that we, we read all the time, that singular opposition that sets in motion everything else. Fascinating. Lily, what are your thoughts? I think a lot about this as a clinician. Um, certainly as a parent, grandparent, and so on, because, you know, it's where we live. We live in a world mm -hmm. of opposition. We have opposites, we have, and they're temporal and spiritual, moral and temporal, you know, sometimes some, they're just part of being a fallen planet. In Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 22, 
Christ says, he that cannot abide the law of a celestial glory cannot abide celestial glory. You know, mm -hmm. So he goes through with the terrestrial and the telestial. And those three realms fascinate me, and they each have laws pertaining to them. And we are always choosing to live either telestial law, terrestrial law, or celestial. And as we make those choices, we are actually qualifying for the kingdoms to come. So we choose glory every day of our lives. And I think when it comes to opposition, we can also benefit from that model and look at you know, how opposition can differ. Terrestrial opposition is the temporal experience of life. We get old, we get sick, we lose people, we lose things, we fail sometimes, the economy could be bad. You know, we might have a relationship with a difficult person. Anyway, there are all kinds of things that are part of being subject to this life. And then celestial opposition clearly is the refining work of the Spirit and where Christ invites constantly, come out from among them, be separate, or come out from Babylon to really embrace the process of sanctification through the Holy Ghost, really becoming more refined. And the answer there is to yield to that refining process and endure. So how have you seen that in your life? For example, a celestial opposition that has helped strengthen your testimony in the atonement. <laughs> well, that's a great question, and there have been many. <laughs> I remember gaining a testimony of motherhood when I was in high school. And I was a really good student, so I thought I would just continue postgraduate work. And I really prayed about it and listened to that, and I thought I was making a tremendous sacrifice to put all those gifts on the table. And I kind of went through this real change of heart. Miracles happened, complete miracles. And in almost 20 years of being a full-time mom with my eight children, I learned the gospel in the trenches. Wow. And I learned to receive revelation. I, it was amazing how the heavens opened and flowed and how much joy I had in that journey to the point where then, seriously, about 18 years after my first child was born, God, through that prayer, sent an answer that was what I call a baseball bat revelation that told me I needed to go back to school and get an MSW. And I was so upset <laughs> because I'm like, I love what you have asked me to wow. do. And it has enlarged my soul. And the opportunities and the things that I've been able to incorporate from that season of my life at home and then this new season, I could never have imagined it. And that is my story that the Lord has molded me and every season has added to the next season and mm -hmm. allowed me to grow and become. And what we think our sacrifices end up being our greatest blessings, Absolutely. which is the meaning of the word. And we see this, I love this in this narrative, how we see what opposition does, that through opposition, that's how we really experience the true joy uh, that it's we growth. were sent on this earth to experience. Yeah, well, I mean, the, maybe the most famous and the shortest verse in, in, the, in this chapter, verse 25, Adam and Eve, he's been talking about Eve as well, fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy, right? I mean, the, all of this was to create the conditions, the possibility of joy. Mm -hmm. I'm struck by, uh, I mean, I, I really like the sort of triad of reading the, the degrees of glory in opposition. Uh, within verse 11, we saw half of it is yeah. about the moral Morality. and half of it is about the temporal. And I wonder if we get a glimpse of something like what you're calling celestial opposition in those very first words to Jacob, verse two, nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness, he's just talked about the afflictions he's faced, right? Thou knowest the greatness of God and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Mm -hmm. There, whether it's moral things he's been through or temporal Whatever. things he's been mm -hmm. through, 
these can be consecrated for good, which is what is happening in verse 25 as well then, right? That is, that's the work of God, to mm -hmm. consecrate our affliction. But the opposition must be there, or yeah. what is there that will help us come to Him with our broken hearts and be able to demonstrate a contrite spirit? In fact, it wasn't until my own heart broke for the first time that I realized that those two are not inextricably linked. When we're young and grow up in the church, we learn to say that pretty fast, broken heart and contrite spirit. <laughs> we can rattle it off, <laughs> you know? Right. But they're really not always connected. Everybody's heart is going to break because the plan requires that opportunity to be presented to us. But we don't have to have a contrite spirit. Mm -hmm. We can mm -hmm. become resentful. Right. We can become angry and bitter and turn away from the very solutions to all our problems. I had six healthy children in a pretty rapid succession, and then I had a miscarriage. I couldn't believe how my heart broke. It was revelatory how big a loss that felt like to me and how much I grieved and how much I mourned. And I remember coming to the Lord for that very purpose that he could consecrate this affliction for my gain. I had had lots of friends or acquaintances who had experienced miscarriage, but I didn't have a clue. And now I did. And I was grateful. I was grateful that how could I have had the capacity to really, really love and help and feel for the people that were experiencing that? And not just that it has to be exactly the same trial, but those things can be consecrated for our gain. And it, it was sacred. It became sacred to me, which is the whole point. Well, and, and as we connect with Lehi's teaching here, with what Nephi had seen in vision, with, with what Jacob will, will teach about this mortality with all of its difficulties and trials and tribulations, God didn't just say, y'all go do that, good luck. He gave us lots of gifts, lots of preparations. He gave us the spirit, but most importantly, he came to descend from his throne on high to go through all of this, to enter into our state and be with us in, in those trials. That's, uh, that's, that's the God we worship, a God who would come and be with us. We've kind of got a unique resource in the Book of Mormon on that idea, right? Alma 7, 11 mm -hmm. and 12. Uh, we get a passage where Alma talking to a group of people who are particularly prepared, but lays that out and just says, look, God knows everything. Nonetheless, right? Nevertheless, he enters the world so that he can know our pains. Experientially, our like you're saying. Yeah. And that can also give us more trust in him, That's too. Right. Right? That's right. Uh, and it it, it goes both ways. In our, in our darkest moments, you know, yeah. he's been there. I've got a question for you, Joe. Yeah. Can you explain kind of this uh, duality relationship between the law, you know, and how it can help us and hurt us and where yeah. the Messiah fits into well, this? And even by the spiritual law, they perish, become right. miserable forever. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, this, yeah. this does not sound great. Right. <laughs> yeah, verse five, I mean, there's a certain sense in which verse five is dealing with a really fundamental problem for us. Laws, commandments kind of scandalize us, right? <laughs> because of course, as soon as we have a law, we recognize how fallible, how frail, how mortal uh, we are. And I think that's what Lehi is getting at here. We get the same temporal spiritual split we've been talking about, right? Uh, he says, by the law, men are cut off and then, and then splits it. By the temporal law, they were cut off. By the spiritual law, they perish from that, which is good. Notice the difference in tenses there. By the temporal law, they were cut off. By the spiritual law, they perish, present tense suddenly. And I take it that the temporal law, he's pointing back to the Garden of Eden, as he'll do later. There's a law given in the Garden of Eden that's temporal. Don't eat. Don't eat. Right? Okay. By that, they're cut off from the presence of God. And now we've got a spiritual law here in the world. And by that, 
man, we constantly screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> so verse six is crucial, right? Because then redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Part of what I love about that verse is there's a, a kind of um, resistance on Lehi's part to clarify too much. He leaves it a little open because he could say redemption for human beings, right, cometh in and through the holy Messiah, but he just says redemption comes. And I find in this a kind of hint that the Messiah comes and saves us, but he doesn't save us from the law. He saves us and he comes to save the law. And Jacob later, he'll have this whole confrontation with Sherem, mm -hmm. we often call one of the antichrists of the Book of Mormon. And uh, Sherem will accuse Jacob of converting the law. I love it. This is the only true word Sherem says. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly right. Christ comes and converts the law itself so that the law too points to Christ, brings us to Christ. So that when we fail to fulfill it, instead of it being this crushing burden, it's reason to rejoice in Christ and the fact that he fulfills the law. Is that the sense in which, yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about fulfilling the law, right? Yeah. Not, not abrogating it, not get, getting rid of it, yep. but, but it, he actually breathes new life into it yeah. because it, it does become purposeful. It, it, it points us to him when it's not that the means that, that condemns us, but the law becomes a way to, to point us towards a, a higher and holier way of living. I think that's exactly right. And I love that. So that, that chapter, right, Matthew 5, and then again, 35, 12, we get it in the Book of Mormon as well. It ends with this, be therefore perfect. But the Book of Mormon will then also end with a comment about being perfect, right? This is Moroni 10, uh, verse 32. And Moroni will say, be perfected in, in him, <laughs> right? Yep. So that he, gives this kind of nice clarification of what it means for that law to be fulfilled. It's not, oh, now I've got more to do, right? <laughs> no, it means I give myself over to Christ and in him, we can do this. Yeah. yeah. One of these verses stands out to me as we talked about, had they not eaten the fruit, mm -hmm. they, they would have no children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy for they knew no misery. How do we connect that to experiencing true joy? Yeah. I mean, this, uh, you'll often hear people point out that if you don't know the opposite, how do you know that this is, right? How do I know what it is to feel right if I haven't felt wrong or something like that? And I think that's a very intuitive and very real experience. I'm struck, though, that the model we get within the Book of Mormon itself, and this is Alma 36, the famous telling of Alma's conversion story, at the climax of that story, he talks about how exquisite and bitter and how exquisite and sweet, right? These, these two extremes. And it's the moment he describes as the moment he knows this word concerning Christ is good. And there's a certain sense in which not only do we need to know good and evil so that we know what, the, we know what good is because it's the thing unlike evil we've experienced, but also it's that transition from feeling lost to feeling saved where we can say Christ. Christ is the thing. Um, and I think if we haven't felt the weight of the law to some extent, we can't feel the lightness of the Messiah. Wow. Let me add a, you know, just some of the things again that we talk about with clients when, when they're in pain. Happiness doesn't stretch us, misery does. Because it's hard to believe how much pain we can hold and go on breathing. Maybe the heart has to break in order to exactly. get bigger, right? Exactly, that's, that's what he's saying. Giving place later, Elder Maxwell says, expanded space for joy. We don't know what joy is unless we know what sorrow is. We can't feel it like people who have had their hearts break. Yeah, and, th and, and this, is, this is what Lehi 
wants to teach his family, right? Mm -hmm. And in verse eight, I love this verse and the, the hope, the optimism the, that it gives us where he says, wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there's no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the holy Messiah, right? I mean, when you know this, when, when you experience it, right? It's, it's not just for you. You, you want to help other people understand that too because help you realize the world is full of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so this is the impulse behind missionary work. Right. This is the impulse behind sharing the gospel. This is the impulse behind everything we do to say there is a way. Jesus has provided the way. Maybe just for fun, but I, verse 10 is one of my favorite moments in the Book of Mormon because Lehi never finishes his sentence. It seems like he's starting to set out a system here, right? Because of the intercession for all, all men come unto God. Wherefore, they stand in the presence of him to be judged of him according to the truth and holiness which is in him. Now, here's where he starts the sentence. Wherefore, the ends of the law, which the Holy One hath given unto the inflicting of the punishment, which is affixed, which punishment that is affixed is in opposition to that of the happiness, which is affixed to answer the ends of the atonement. For it must needs be. Right? <laughs> he's, he's halfway through a thought. It never finished. You're like, wait, how do the ends of the atonement and the ends his of way. the <laughs> Sometimes it gets but, pretty involved. And I, yeah, and I think that's a marvelous little moment, right? That Lehi, has, he's, that passion is running through him so hard mm -hmm. that when he's even trying to articulate intellectually what's behind it, he can't quite put the system together. Yeah. And then ask the backup, let me start again, let me start again. Yeah, and at a certain point, it's not just intellectual. Yeah. At a certain point, it's not just a math problem. At a certain point, exactly. it's, it's not a logical argument. It's something they feel, mm -hmm. right? It's, 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 it's the, what the Messiah has done. It's, it's a story of love. And he's not the only person who's ever tried to explain what <laughs> Jesus did yeah. and then just be brought up short because yeah. at a certain level, we lose words, yeah. right? Be yeah. Because it's, it's what you feel. It's, it's, it's experiential. Yeah. And it's, it's not just purely rational. Yeah. Lily, as we close this discussion, I would just love to hear from you, from all of your experience. Can you give us some final thoughts on your testimony and why you choose to stay on this covenant path? What a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it makes sense to me, Ben. My parents were so faithful. I learned at their feet how much the gospel made sense to them. There's nothing that can compete with the harmony of truth. Mm -hmm. And it all comes together in Jesus Christ. And he wants nothing more than to share it with us. I, I try to share with my children and then in the teaching that I've done and with my clients that we have a loving Heavenly Father who has all power and he wants nothing more than to give that power to us. And this is again, message, the message Lehi is saying, arise, awake, come out of your slumber, step up. It is hard. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. There is no other way. And it's because he loves us. So. We don't want to protect our children from the hard things of the gospel. We want to help them embrace them at age-appropriate ways, in incremental ways, with positivity and support, never shame, not trying to manipulate through guilt or whatever, but just understanding what's at stake and to embrace the power that God wants to give us if we prove we can handle it. I had a gentleman in my office one time who said, do you really think there is enough NutraSweet in the universe to turn my lemons into lemonade. And I paused to give dignity to the question. And then I said, yes, I absolutely believe that the atonement of Jesus Christ is infinitely sweet. It doesn't matter how many lemons we bring, we'll get lemonade. 
Lily, thank you so much for sharing your experiences in life. It's been wonderful to, to hear from you. And Joe, thanks for coming and yeah. sharing your insights with us. And we're always love having Patrick here to, thanks, to share your thoughts <laughs> and insights as well. And for those at home, thank you for joining us for this discussion from 2 Nephi chapters one and two. Visit byutv.org slash come follow up for more study and teaching resources. Please join us next week as we study 2 Nephi chapters three through five and discuss the division of Lehi's people and the comfort felt by those who trust in God. Thank you for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.